The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Kevin Walker. He is a professor at Michigan State University where he teaches food safety. He is also the author of a fantastic book that we'll be talking about today titled The Grand Food Bargain and the Mindless Drive for More. Originally recruited by USDA, Dr. Walker directed a center focused on emerging issues affecting animal agriculture. He later became a fellow with the Kellogg National Leadership Program and launched the Executive Leadership in Food Safety Initiative, where he developed a flagship training course with the World Trade Organization. He has served on two Institute of Medicine National Research Council committees within the National Academies and has carefully observed the forces influencing global food systems. Welcome, Dr. Walker. Thank you very much, Melinda. Pleasure to be with you. I wonder if we could simply start out Explain the title to our listeners, The Grand Food Bargain. What is that exactly? The Grand Food Bargain is actually our third relationship to food. We think of our first relationship of hunters and gatherers, and our second was farming. But this third relationship, what I call the Grand Food Bargain, was this separation between consumption of food and production of food. And as a result of that, it led to a whole new class of society that we never think about, called consumers, ourselves, who had no direct responsibility to produce the food that they consumed. And what they wanted over time was to have more and more food for less effort. But like any bargain, there's always two sides to it. And the other side was new approach to farming, where profitability became the target. And profitability was derived based on volume. So the emphasis was to produce more volume to satisfy consumers who wanted more availability for less effort. Now, historically, if we think back to how long man has kind of roamed the planet, that took us back to almost 2.8 million years. This change, this grand food bargain, was like turning a light on in a dark room. It changed everything. But what we don't remember is that while we were busy changing the availability of food, food was changing us. Mm-hmm. As a dietitian, I wish, and I've heard this also from farmers, I wish farmers were rewarded for quality rather than quantity. Because at the end of the day, being well-nourished is so critical to everything that we do, you know, how we think, our physical activity, etc., I love the quotes that you have pulled forth in each chapter, one of which really surprised me. It was George Orwell. He said, it is curious how seldom the all importance of food is recognized. That's exactly correct. And what what happens is because we have had our way with food long enough, we've come to believe that food will always be abundant. Mm-hmm. And when we first entered into the grand food bargain, eating more meant better nourishment. 
but as the emphasis on continuing to push out more and more calories took over, we began to just see more food and not distinguish the consumption of additional calories with the importance of nutrition. And so when you have a bargain that's set up where the emphasis is on how do you sell and deliver more calories, then it becomes easy to internalize and say, you know what, food is not about us as a society. Food is about what I want. It's what I want, when I want it, where I want it, and how I want it. And the relationship of food to health, to nutrition, to nourishment, to well-being, to what we do as a society tends to fade away. And what happens now is food has become a transaction. We go in, we buy it, we pay for it. We don't think about it beyond that point. You speak in terms of systems, and I think that's so important that we realize how everything is connected to everything else ultimately. But I wonder if you would help our listeners understand or think about what do we mean when we talk about a food system? We're talking about food from its that starts as energy emanating from the sun through solar rays, and that energy gets transformed into chemical energy from plants, and then from the chemical energy in plants, some of that is then picked up by animals that gets translated into meat and protein, and then that gets combined with stages that we have put in place, such as intensive agricultural farming and production and marketing and distribution that ends up on grocery store shelves. And that then is where we come in as consumers and pick that up through supermarkets and and restaurants. All of that comprises the entire system that is out there. Now, what's happened over time is we don't think of, of food as coming from a system. We think of food as just coming from supermarkets and restaurants or from farmers or from free markets. We don't take that back to the very essence that says, It all starts from food is energy, and energy comes from life, and we are forever reliant on the well-being of other species, that the laws of nature still apply universally, and that we live on a finite planet with fixed realities that are never going to change. All of that is easy to take away because we forget about that. Mm -hmm. Right. So much of your book is dedicated to the comparison between scarcity and abundance. And I think it is so important for us to think about how close we really are to collapse and scarcity. I don't know when it happened, probably after I did a Food and Society Policy Fellowship through the Kellogg Foundation. You too did a fellowship that changed your life. The same was for me. Before that fellowship, I think I probably drove through Iowa and saw acres and acres of corn and soybeans and thought, look at this lush food production. Isn't this great? And now when I drive through Iowa, I am absolutely frightened by the monocultures. So let's talk about monocultures and how dangerous they are. Oh, I share the same feelings when I've driven through Nebraska many times and I've seen these endless fields of corn and I've noticed over the years how that has changed. And what's happened is we sometimes think we're now immune from food scarcity. And what we've done is we've equated greater abundance with greater food security. So we believe that the more that there is, the more security that we have. With the grand food bargain, there never were any promises or guarantees that it would last. So to help put this a bit in perspective, 
Scarcity has been a part of humankind ever since the beginning, up until about 130 years ago, which in context means about two full lifetimes. And then all of a sudden we took that scarcity and we converted that into abundance through science, through the policies we put in place, through drawing down on, on resources and so forth. But we didn't stop there. We didn't stop and ask ourselves, how do we live with abundance? We converted that abundance within two decades to glut. Mm. And then we took that glut and we converted it into waste. So in the United States, for example, up to 40% of food is never consumed. But the next stage beyond that waste is that that waste is destroying the very forces that once gave us abundance. And that's putting us directly right back on the path towards scarcity. And so when I drive across the United States and I see these abundant fields with these monoculture crops, and I look out, what I see is the lack of diversity that's out there and how that will affect the well-being of other species. I see the water that's being drawn out in the High Plains Aquifer, or some call the Ogallala Aquifer that runs clear from, from South Dakota down into Texas, and how that has been drained by well over a third and that's finite water, or what's oftentimes called fossil water. Once that's gone, it's gone for good. Hmm. And I see how we've altered the nitrogen cycle that's out there, such that before this symbiotic relationship between bacteria like rhizobi and legumes like soybeans would generate the nitrogen that plants could take up and use in the atmosphere. And because of our use, of petroleum-based fertilizer, how that cycle has been short-circuited and how we've changed that. And I look at that and say that no other country started with more ability to produce food more efficiently and abundantly than the United States, and yet we have not realized that thus far we show no ability to live with abundance. And as a result, we're directly on the path back towards scarcity. Mm-hmm. You started your career, I think, if I'm tracking your career properly, you started with a job in agribusiness, and you worked for Farmland Industries. It was a, a farmer cooperative, and you helped to promote nitrogen fertilizer. It looked really good on paper. We could increase yields. It increased profits. You got a big end-of-the-year bonus because you were able to march forward with this wonderful nutrient that improved the quantity of food that farmers could produce. But then you realized that there were unintended consequences and you ended up leaving that job. Tell me a little bit about your awakening that you experienced with that position. Part of that actually started earlier. Part of it started when I grew up on a farm and I grew up watching this interaction between what we did as farmers and nature and the environment and what happened afterwards. And you don't think about it when you're young and you're living on a farm and there's lots to do, but those are some of the most valuable lessons that I acquired was being close to nature and seeing how no matter what we did, we did not control what the final outcome would be. When I got to farmland industry, and I very much enjoyed working with the largest farmer cooperative in North America at the time, and I was given this challenge, and yes, I did create this model, and it appeared initially to be a win-win for everybody because, after all, it made available food more abundantly and more efficiently, better for consumers and for those farmers, part of farmland, more profitable. 
And then I started to think more about it and call back to what I had learned, and I began to say, what have we put in motion? When does it stop? Because if we continue to do that, there will be consequences. And over time, I've had a whole series of those experiences which have borne that out. We can apply more nitrogen. Not all of it stays on the field, and some of it ends up into rivers, and those rivers flow into water supply for people, and we can end up with serious problems as it relates to diseases or infirmities that can set in on people. And then some of that then ends up, all that nitrogen, in terms of nitrous oxide in the atmosphere. And all of those things have serious implications. We are not given a free ride, even if you're a farmer or if you're a consumer. What we do does lead to outcomes. We can set it in motion, but we cannot always control what happens beyond that. Mm-hmm. And you worked with USDA. You looked at plant and animal diseases. And we write about antibiotics and animal feed and conflicts of interest within the EPA. You also describe animal agriculture really as one of our biggest challenges. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why you see animal agriculture as so problematic. We've got to the point where we've moved into concentrated animal feeding operations, where we are feeding animals so intensively. And in fact, it's something like 70% of what comes off of fields goes into animals. And then from that, that then flows into what we consume. So on the one hand, we raise animals so intensively, and we've never really come to grips with the waste that comes out of that, pigs in particular, mm-hmm. and what we do with that. And then some of that waste basically filters away down into streams and into rivers and creates problems further downstream. And the other side of that is our use of of antibiotics that we've done in animals. We've made a little bit of progress in terms of trying to throttle back the use, but we early on figured out, and we still don't know the reason why, that if you put antibiotics in small amounts into feed, that it helps promote the growth of animals so they put on weight more quickly. But we've also then began to see how antibiotic resistance has continued to proliferate. And it continues to proliferate to the point that We are being exposed now to bacteria that are now immune from classes of antibiotics that we may one day come in contact and have no response for. And in fact, that's part of what is happening is we haven't continued to advance. So that then has happened, and then we start consuming more and more meat. And because of that, that then leads to problems. And so the bottom line is it has helped to foster an imbalance in terms of the energy that we need to live and be healthy, and it's created along the way a lot of missteps in terms of how we handle the outcomes associated with that in terms of health and so forth. You know, in terms of wealth, the United States is at the top when you compare it to peer countries, and in terms of health, we're at the bottom. We eat more food, we spend less on food, but we also spend more on health care. Right. And the big outcome, we're last as it relates to obesity, And we've got big problems with diabetes and heart disease. And all of that, as we become more affluent, we want to eat more more meat, more concentrated energy. And it continues to create problems that have yet to dissipate and will probably continue until we come to this realization of what we're doing. Exactly. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. 
We are joined by Dr. Kevin Walker. He is the author of the book we are talking about today, titled The Grand Food Bargain and the Mindless Drive for More. Well, Dr. Walker, I really focused in on some of the illusions and myths that you describe with the grand food bargain. And I looked at meat, you know, you say meat is the poster child of the industrial food system gone awry. And one of the myths that we hear about these concentrated animal feeding operations, and I know this firsthand as they try to invade more and more of the Midwest where I live, is they promise jobs, they promise economic benefit for communities and farmers, they promise expansion, they promise cheap meat, and I hear these arguments as just another piece of the big illusion that we are painting about always wanting to increase quantity. But you point out other myths as well. And the one that I was so glad to see that you addressed was this idea that we've got to feed the world. Why is this such a tempting idea to grasp onto? It's tempting because it feels good. The number one volunteer activity in the United States deals with food. We volunteer in food kitchens. Uh, we share meals with others when they're sick or have infliction. Food is a way of, of reinforcing our connection as humanity. And so the idea that we have more to give is, is heartwarming. But what we don't do is look at the other side of that, and that is how do we help the world feed themselves. Right. The illusion that we need to help feed the world doesn't address that the world in itself needs to learn how to feed itself. And that because we have not taken that, we've actually increased their dependency. And so if you look at what has happened over time, we've created situations to where if you remove that food supply from what we do, they have not been able to build up their own capability to produce and to provide that food. And the other thing that happens with that in our quest to feed the world, we always make sure that that meets our political objectives along the way. So that food to feed the world does not necessarily go to those most in need. It goes to those countries most in need where we can gain some political leverage in order to use them. And it presumes that always thinking that we need to produce more in order to feed more, that there isn't enough food as is. And the fact is, we don't have a problem with the availability of food. What we have a problem with is the access to food. And the food system that we have set up rewards those who can have access. It doesn't address those who don't have the ability to access that. They can see it. They know it's there in our own country. They can see it as well. What they don't have is access to food. And so it sounds good, and it's used for political leverage on all sides. And when we say we need to continue to produce to, in order to feed the whole world, everybody buys on board, but nobody steps back and look. what are we really saying. Mm -hmm. What we're really saying is that this is more about us as opposed to actually helping others. Right. You have a great quote also in the very beginning of your book by George Bernard Shaw, and it bears repeating. We must think about things as they are, not as they are said to be. And one of the take-home messages that I got from your book was that we need to ask questions to feed curiosity and to help others ask questions about our food systems so that 
we can look past or open the curtain, if you will, look behind some of the messages that we receive that create these illusions and really see how things are. And you had a life lesson that you bring forth in the beginning of the book and then at the end that really woke you up to the way we think about food in Western society. And it was a lesson that you took away from the Kalahari Bushmen. And I wonder if you could share that experience. It was a powerful experience. It was one that was unexpected. A friend of mine named Paul, we were given the opportunity to go in search of food with a Bushman. He didn't speak English. We didn't speak his click language. Just a few minutes after starting his walk in the Kalahari, and we were struggling to keep up as he seemed to glide across this red sand, we realized that we were completely within his control, that we needed him, but he didn't need us. He wandered up and down, and we admired his skills of being able to pick up on small clues, oftentimes clues that we didn't fully understand or appreciate. And at one point, he picked up his pace, and he moved in and out until he came up on some desert bushes. And he looked around while, while he waited for us to get there, and then he pointed for us to look down. And we looked down, and there underneath was a clutch of ostrich eggs. Now, ostrich eggs, they can weigh between three and five pounds. I mean, they're, they're big compared to the table eggs that we commonly think about. But why I remember that experience so much is that after looking at those eggs and already presuming that we were going to carry all of those back to his community, because after all, he was the one who made the effort to go out and find it. He was the one that was slim and could use this protein as could his community. While we were processing all of that, he knelt down and studied each of those eggs. And then he picked up a single one and held it in his hands and step back. And we motioned to him, we're ready to help. We have a backpack. We can put some in there. We've got hands. We can help carry them. And as we motioned, he walked away. And as I thought about that, his actions transcended our understanding because our understanding was limited by our reliance on the modern food system. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that he provided a different window into the modern food system and what we are doing for ourselves. He understood that connection between that environment and that egg and his well-being and their survival as a culture. It turns out, because I would go on to research and understand that, that it took some 70 ostrich eggs to have an adult ostrich. But if that adult ostrich survived, it was, it's one of the longest living uh, animals in the world. And it can go on to do that. We, on the other hand, don't think about that. And we'll go into a grocery store, and if we go past the aisle where they're selling fresh eggs, and there's a sign that says two for one, they may not even be on our list, but we'll take more. And while we're taking more, we're not thinking about where they're coming from, what resources it took to produce them, what the well-being of the animals behind it, the chickens behind it that made it possible. All of those things to us have faded into the background. They're not there. He understood that. And I've never forgotten that experience. And I actually, my friend Paul took a picture of it and sent it to me and it was framed. And I kept that uh, near my computer as a reference point for understanding our relationship to food is far different than what we put into our mouth. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful story of man living within his environment and understanding the connection and having that respect, not only wanting to feed himself and his family, but also recognizing the connection to this very intricate network. So we just have a few minutes left, unfortunately, but I want to hone in on a topic that you bring forth in this book, and that is the sadness of the apathy that we have. We have to encourage people to care and to be curious. And you outline questions that you hope people will ask. Maybe when we're sitting at the table with our loved ones or just even by ourselves as a meditation, before we put that first bite of food in our mouth, tell me some of the things you want us to be thinking about. Well, having written this book and having been a part of the food system all of my life, I've never appreciated more the role of food in our lives until now. And in fact, one of the things, I cannot pick up a banana and look at a banana without thinking about that that banana is now on borrowed time. And I can also look at that banana and be appreciative of of the perfect packaging that it comes in, the perfect indicator of ripeness, of sweetness, of, of a whole variety of tastes. And I'll oftentimes look at the food on the plate and see the different colors and wonder the number of hands that have touched it and the diversity of nature that's out there. You know, there are some 300,000 different edible plants that are out there. And we take advantage of very few of those. All of those things have brought a richness that even though I had been part of producing food, I had also been caught up in just the idea that more is always better without seeing that. And it's that sort of appreciation that I really want people to think about. And the questions that come along with it is, are we still okay with the grand food bargain? Because it hasn't changed. The terms, the, the payoff is still in, in quantity, not in terms of quality. Are we okay with what we give up? Because if we never think about food and if we continue to just go along and say, that's ah, not important, it's there, I don't really need to worry about. What are we also saying about the one ability that stands us apart? Our ability to look down the road and think about what that will look like in comparison to what we practice today. And if we give that up, we're giving up the one trait that stands us apart from all other species. And we then become susceptible to what others want, not what we want and how we want it. And I've sometimes wondered, does the food system exist to serve us, or do we exist to serve the food system? And the difference in that is if the food system exists to serve us, then it is our job to look beyond what's available in front of us on the plate and say, what do we need to do to ensure that that will still be there, not just for us, but for those to come, and not just for the moment of satisfying our, our personal pleasures and tastes, but for how it makes us healthy and how it will make us better off. If we exist to serve the food system, then we're just another part. We have no more important role than the plants that were harvested and the cattle and the other animals that were slaughtered in order to do that. And our role then becomes one of being the final cog in the wheel that converts energy into dollars. Well, Dr. Walker, this book, The Grand Food Bargain and the Mindless Drive for More, is truly exhaustive in looking at so many 
components of the food system, and I want to thank you very much for putting it together. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Kevin Walker. He is a professor at Michigan State University. He is the author of the book we've been discussing. I'll provide a link to that on our website. And he shares his travels from all over the world talking about how we are all connected through our food system. Dr. Walker, thank you so much. Thank you, Melinda. It's been a pleasure. 